Well, we got a lot going on. This is a very special family. Lots of milestones get hit, like the one we celebrate today, welcoming those seventh graders into the youth group. We've got a bunch of families going out for our elementary camp, out at base camp, we call that. We had our high schoolers did an in-town service project this last week, Doug Tave. It's just, we've got a lot going on. And then there's all kinds of personal things that are happening. Some, some are really light and awesome. Some are really heavy and really tough and hard to orient ourselves. At the center of it all, our family stuff, our difficulties, our joys is Jesus who we have been studying for this year. And so we're down to the last four chapters in the book of Luke, where we have methodically followed the story of his life and his teachings and his work from beginning to end in our sermon series entitled, This is the Way. So we're in the middle of Holy Week today. It's what we call it now. It's the last week of Jesus's life that leads up to and includes what we celebrate all the time, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. We covered in chapter 19, his finally, after 10 chapters of road tripping, he arrives in Jerusalem for this big week. Okay, he finally arrives. That was in chapter 19, and that happened on Sunday. Also in chapter 19, we covered what happened on Monday, where he went into the, to God's temple, his temple, we learn, and he stops what's happening there, and he comes in and takes over and makes it his classroom. And he starts teaching every day, Luke tells us. He stopped what was happening, and he starts teaching every day. That was also in chapter 19. Chapter 20, last week, you remember, it was the day of questions. All of the different sections of Jewish leaders coming in and taking their shot at trying to stifle Jesus, stop Jesus, discredit Jesus. And that also, we kind of never seen this before, but it was kind of their last shot in any hopeful interaction with Jesus. It, this, that was his last week, was his last time to address them. He'd gone to their homes when they invited him. He engaged with them when, even when they had malicious motives, tried to trap him. That was their last chance. And scripture says he's done talking to them. He didn't have time. He didn't have time. It's Holy Week. So he reserves the rest of what's happening in these last few chapters, in these last days before his crucifixion, for the willing He has to talk to the willing, and that involves his disciples, of course, and then the people that are coming every day into those temple courts and listening to him. So today is chapter 21, and it's likely still Tuesday. Luke doesn't say we've moved to Wednesday, so it's likely later in the day on Tuesday. And after one final condemning of the Sanhedrin, you remember they're the the Jewish religion leaders. They're the ones that carry all the authority. Okay, in, on, on earth in the Jewish religion. So after one more condemnation of them, he's now going to shift his focus in this chapter to the future. Okay, and if you've read ahead, you're probably wondering what in the world I'm going to do with this text today. Because it's like full of apocalyptic language, talk of signs and things to come and persecutions to come. All things that are supposedly supposed to precede either the destruction of the temple, which was big news, or the second coming of Christ, or precede both. And it's, it's difficult. So if you're wondering what I'm going to do with this today, yeah, me too. Me too. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Before we get into that, before we kind of handle that inadequately, we need to read the last bit of chapter 20 because I left that out this last week, because it's connected to the first bit 
of chapter 21. We don't often think that because our chapter headings divide it, okay? But let me make the case here. So starting in verse 45 of chapter 20. Remember, he's just talked to the Sanhedrin. They've questioned him, and he has put, shut them up, basically, and said, I'm done with you. And so he turns to his disciples. It says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. So he's wrapping up this he stopped talking to them, and this is his last word and warning to the willing. Be careful of these institutional Jewish religious appointed authoritative leaders. And he condemns them on three counts very clearly. The first one, they love public acknowledgement from people. And he gives three examples there, three or four, depending on how you count them. N.T. Wright says that the scribes would measure their value and their esteem by the length and the ornate robes that they wore. So he says they like that. They like walking around as clergy and being seen as the educated, authoritative, spiritual people. They like that. They also like the reverent greetings out in public. They're into that. Uh, Barclay, William Barclay, one of the commentators I read, he says they, they even expected it. It was embedded in their teaching that you should, the respect you have for your friends should border the respect you have for your teacher. Your respect that you have for your teacher should border the respect you have for God. I mean, they, they, they said that. They said if your dad and your teacher are both like in jail or in debt, you should take care of your teacher before you take care of your father. Your father only brought you into this world. Your teacher has given you the key to the next one. They taught this, and so they expected it. They like that. They like that esteem. They like the best seats at the synagogues. That's the front seats, because the smartest people always sat in the front seats at their church, you know, the synagogues. So they wanted those, and they wanted the best seats of honor at dinners. Jesus has already addressed that earlier in Luke. The bottom line, they weren't looking for God's love. These are God's leaders, and they are not looking for God's love. They are not looking for his acknowledgement. They're looking for people's acknowledgement, and they've become addicted to the privilege and the prestige and the power that comes with being clergy. And then it says they exploited widows. I can't overstate how loathsome this crime is through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of Luke. He's been an advocate more than the other gospel writers for the marginalized. And throughout the whole Bible, throughout the whole Bible, there's a big four listed that are always listed. There's more than that, but there's big four that are always listed. There's the uh, orphan, there's the stranger, there's the, uh, the poor, and then there is the widow. And they are always seen. The people of God, the litmus test for whether they are people of God is whether they take care of the marginalized, who everyone else in the world dismisses. And so if the leaders of the people of God, they're not just not taking care of them, they're abusing them. They're taking advantage of them. And 
the commentators tell me that they would take advantage of their hospitality, expecting their hospitality even from their limited means. Okay, When they needed an educated someone to help them in court or something, they would go to their priest. And the priest, even though it's against the law, would charge them for that. They had their wiggly ways to get through that law and make it okay. They would expect payment from the widows for the long prayers that they prayed, supposedly, on their behalf. They had all these things. I cannot tell you how heinous this would be. My mom, this is years ago, just as she was start, she still lived in her own apartment, and, and her mind was just starting to go on the memory thing, and she was taken for five grand by one of those guys that called and just did a great job of enlisting her to start a business. I cannot tell you how heated I was, but let me, let me just ask you to imagine if it was someone who was doing it in the name of Christ. That's what was going on here. So they loved public acknowledgement. They exploited widows and, widows and they prayed for show. They weren't actually praying to God. They were praying for the people who were listening to them pray. They were performing. And so you hear there's a special little condemnation for this crew as he finishes up with them. And he basically says there's a, there's a special place in hell for them. That's what he tells the people. See it? So then he goes on, and let me just point out, it does just go on here. The original book of Luke, he didn't put a chapter heading and a new NIV heading over this section that we're about to read. This is what happens next. It says, as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, typically, this passage is used as a beautiful story that teaches us about giving, okay? And let me tell you, this woman, let me tell you about her. She is is something. I mean, boss girl queen, slay. All right, so for those of you wondering what in the world I just said, welcome to the generation gap. I hung out with the youth group this last week and was taught these words. I think what it means is that when some woman is really awesome and she does something really cool, I think that's what you say. And now that I've said that out loud and it's going to be recorded for all the world to see, I sure hope I didn't say something inappropriate. (laughs) Anyway, this, this woman, this widow, she has been used as an example for giving. And I think that's right. Some of the lessons that I think you can extract from this that you've heard preached is like the measure of a gift is not based on how much you give, but how much you have left over, right? You can kind of see where that lesson would come from here. The idea that giving isn't faith-filled giving unless it like requires faith. And so it's sacrificial when you give out of your abundance. It doesn't take a lot of faith. You can still depend on your money to eat. But she was depending on God. Another lesson that I've heard attached to this teaching is that the true measure of a gift is the attitude with which you give it, right? I mean, she could have been pretty ashamed to just, in light of all the big gifts that were going on, this is a public, this is the, the temple court, the court of women, everyone's allowed there, and the giving boxes are out there, and they're putting in these big gifts, and she's sneaking in trying to just put in these two things that, that doesn't amount to much at all. I mean, but her humility in just giving it 
as opposed to maybe the pride that others were giving it publicly. So you can see where all that is. And I think this text is fine. It's fine. I've done it. Every commentator you read will do it. Everyone I did does it. We read, they, they read this and they talk about giving. But in the context of how we've read Luke narratively and in light of what he's just done and said and what he's about to do and say, he just condemned all the Jewish leaders and, and, and how they run things in their religion. And he's about to say, all of this is going to be destroyed, including this temple where this religion is run. Okay, He says all that, but he and Luke just drops this really beautiful little story on giving right here in the middle of that. May, again, the, the text doesn't say all those lessons overtly. Again, I'm not opposed to it because we don't know. We don't know, but he doesn't condemn those who gave more. He doesn't say that they didn't give enough. He doesn't say that they have a prideful attitude when they gave or that they're giving for show. He doesn't say any of that. And concerning the woman, he doesn't say what her motives are. She didn't, he doesn't say she had great faith because she did this or that she's demonstrating the standard for giving for all time. All it says is that she gave more than everyone else relatively and she has nothing left to live on. So she could be acting out of love and gratitude and devotion and dedication or she could be acting out of guilt She could be acting out of mere duty. She may have been taught by her religion a transactional sort of faith that if you don't give to God, don't expect anything from him. She might be trying to buy her salvation, scared it's not enough. We just don't know. So because I don't know, I'm okay allowing room for this text to be a challenge to me in my giving. It is. I think that's right. But because I don't know, I need to allow room that Jesus is doubling down on just how far the Jewish religion, as it's being practiced, has strayed. Are you feeling me here? I did find a commentary that, that affirmed that this could be it. Was this a praise for this woman or was this a grief at the state of affairs of religion that would allow a woman, a widow, to put everything else, everything she had into the plate? If she comes to the temple, she should be served. In a religion that has in its Bible, and I just picked four out of dozens of texts from these Jewish leaders' Bible, a a faith that says things like, cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. In a religion that says, do not take advantage of a widow, my anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will become widows. In a religion that says, I will come near to you for judgment against those who oppress widows. In a religion that says, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. In a faith that says all of that, this religion allows a widow to come in and put in all she has and take it as a high priest and live on it. You following me here? He might be, he's going, I mean, what, what does she do next? What does she do next? He says at all she had to live on. Everyone else, they were giving out their abundance. They still had enough to go home and eat. She didn't. Is she going to go home and die? She put all she had to live on. 
So he might, I think we need to be, leave room here that that would be consistent with the narrative. Again, I'm not opposed to this being a challenge for our giving. It should be. But it could also be a challenge for some of the things that invisibly get into our systems that are not aligned with the kingdom. That's what this religion has become. Now, the rest of the chapter goes on, like I said, to talk about the future. And it becomes a very difficult chapter. And it's because there are at least, at least three different concepts being spoken of in the rest of the chapter. We're not going to read all of it. It's long and cumbersome. And like I said, it's confusing. So let me just tell you at least these three elements that are in there so I can at least describe to you why it's confusing. And maybe there's some edification and some for us to learn in this. So the first one is, embedded in this is his prediction of the destruction of this temple. And as a result, also the, the whole city of Jerusalem. That's coming. He's prophesying that. So it starts like this. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. This would have been big news. The temple of God's going to be destroyed. That's precisely the opposite of what they were expecting with Jesus, the king, coming in to establish the kingdom. Remember, we've talked about this at length. They thought he was coming in to kick the Romans out. Temple of God is there. It's beautiful. It's the center of, the the city of God is the center of God's kingdom. So they said, when they heard this, teacher, when's this going to happen? And and what will be the sign that they're about to happen? They're just wanting to know, of course. Now, this is how this section begins. Jesus telling them, that this temple will be destroyed. And this ends up happening. We know this is in the history books, AD 70. AD 70, about less than 40 years from this moment, the temple's gonna be destroyed. We know when that happened. And he's speaking of it. Jump down to verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that's been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women, for nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of Gentiles are fulfilled. That is all Related and an accurate description of 8070, the destruction of the temple. So that's in this chapter. It's there at the beginning, then it's down in chapter 20 through 24, very clearly. Now, a second concept that is in here is this concept that the Jews called the day of the Lord. It's not vocabulary we use all of the time, but it's in the New Testament in some places, the day of the Lord. The Jews regarded time in two ages, okay? So there was the age to come, We've talked about that. This is, would be the golden age of Jewish supremacy on the earth. It'd be a reincarnation of David's kingdom where they are in charge. God is leading them and they are leading the earth. And this great kingdom of peace rules and reigns. And then, so there was that age to come. And then there was the present age. And they believed it's totally messed up. Everything's out of kilter. It's not aligned with God's will. It is fit only for destruction so that it can be redeemed and rebuilt as the kingdom that it's supposed to be in the coming age. And the moment that happens is called the day of the Lord. It's a moment of wrath, a moment of change. And there's all this vocabulary in the Old Testament of like 
earth-shaking language that it's all, all the Jews would recognize that as being the day of the Lord. And so, verse 11, it says, there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. They would have instantly recognized this as day of the Lord language. Verse 25 and 26, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what's coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So, obviously, their understanding of the age to come that comes with the day of the Lord is is off. And probably their picture of what the day of the Lord is going to look like is off, but it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from all these dramatic pictures in the Old Testament. And so Jesus confuses this chapter a little more by using those images, he knowing what it means, but the audience probably picturing what they think it means, and then us 2,000 years later wondering what in the world it means. Okay, so that's two concepts. And the third concept that's embedded in here is the second coming of Christ. We're a little more familiar in talking about the second coming. So we see this being addressed in verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with, great, with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. See, we read that and we think of the second coming. And so Jesus has got this mishmash of subjects all in this chapter. And I dare you, you just try to read it and just make it flow like butter. As you read it, you try that. So in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this, wait, I wanted to, I wanted to tell you a little bit. So throughout Scripture, not a ton in Luke, right here in a couple more places, Luke is mostly talking about the destruction of the temple. But there's a few little verses like this that is talking about his second coming. And the second coming, it's all over the New Testament. The second coming of Jesus represents his last glorious act. That's pretty universally accepted. It's his last glorious act here on earth where everything we're waiting for as Christians is finished. Now there are four, there's more than this, but there's four major schools of interpretation about the second coming, about when it's going to happen and, and what's going to happen before it and what's going to happen after and, and what's it going to look like and what's its nature. And in my study, and I studied on this subject a lot in college, pull my hair out, try to figure it out because I thought I needed to know to be saved because I was a knowledge-based guy thinking if you, if you don't have the right knowledge, you're not going to be saved. So I'm like tearing my hair out in college trying to figure this out. And after asking people way smarter than me, my professors, reading people who, who land using the same scripture that I read on different places in a way that I go, hmm, that, okay, that makes some sense. Here's what I concluded. You want the answer? Here it is. I do not know. And more important than that, on the second coming, how it comes about, what it looks like, what the signs are, here's what I concluded in my walk with God on that. I don't need to know. What I and you need to know is how, for sure, to be in solidarity with Jesus whatever it looks like. And that we know. That we know. We are to follow Jesus. So whatever it looks like, whenever it is, 
all of that stuff, it's just, it becomes, I hope this is relieving to you, that it becomes fun to talk about it, not weighty. It becomes fun to consider where my view is confronted by certain scriptures or my view is affirmed by certain scriptures. It becomes fun, but not weighty and not a measure of fellowship or salvation. So that's what I have to say about that. So in the midst of all of this, what use is there for us in this chapter? Like for us, what, what use is there? And I find it in verses 12 through 19. And this will also serve as just my, what hit me in this otherwise confusing chapter. So he says, of course, that he's telling them that the Christ followers are going to suffer before all these things happen. They are going to be going through it. And he says that. And intermixed with his warnings about this suffering, that's the bad news, he gives them some encouragement and some instruction. And those things that he says to them, while they're going to suffer here on earth, I think, even though that's what this chapter is talking about, it is time-bound, it is talking to them about what's coming. I think it translates to us in our suffering as Christians when we're persecuted for our faith. And even when we're just hurting, these are universal truths that he says to them that I think um, I want to leave with you and I think will bless you. So read this with me. Before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. I mean, you're going to be, religions are going to be on you and civil authorities are going to be on you. This is bad news. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. Now, this will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words. I will give you wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, friends, and they will put, he's pulling no punches, they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. So here's, again, even though he's talking to them in that generation, I want to leave these for you in yours. The first thing he says that's encouraging and instructional is look to be a witness. Look to be a witness. There is something that elevates your testimony when you are suffering for it. And this is our call, whether we're suffering or not, isn't it? I mean, if we want to look to be a witness when we're suffering, how much more should we look to be a witness of who Jesus, being a witness is just who is Jesus to you? Telling the world that. Telling the world who Jesus is. How are you doing with this? Really, when is the last time you shared Jesus with anyone what was their name what were the circumstances were you looking for the opportunity to tell someone about who Jesus is to you he's someone to you right who is he to you look to be a witness second he says don't worry Jesus will give you words and wisdom now again he's saying this specifically to them in the context of needing to defend yourself right defend the faith in the face of challenge to your faith. But if we're not supposed to worry when we are being oppressed and we're in danger, how much more do we need to lay down worry and trust Jesus when we're not being, when we are in a time of peace? How confident are you? 
How confident are you? How dependent are you on allowing God to give you words when you need them, whatever you're facing, to give you wisdom as you live this life, let alone face difficulties? Third one, I love this one. You will be okay. I love when circumstances give us no excuse to believe anything's going to be okay. And then you hear that still small voice say, yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. With authority, with heart stabilizing power in the face of everything up to and including death. You will be okay. I have to take how he says this in the ultimate and eternal sense. Even though he says, not a hair in your head would perish, that makes you think they're going to stay alive. But he just said, some of you are going to be put to death. So, if some of them are going to be put to death, but they're still not going to perish, I have to take it in the eternal sense. And this truth that we will not perish in the larger story has a peace-bringing effect that transcends whatever happens, whatever has happened, and whatever you face. I'm just telling you as a witness, as a witness, as an experiencer of it, my older brothers and sisters out here are the ones I've learned this from the most. The young just haven't, had to need God in that way yet. But you can. You can. And so I thank you, folks, for having that confidence. Do you have it? And then finally, he says, stand firm right at the end. Stand firm. And he attaches it to a promise that goes right to my heart, what I really want. He says, by standing firm, you will gain life. N.T. Wright says that this standing firm is, uh, it's persistence. Yes, it's persistence, but it's also patience. And you need, you need them both. It is very difficult when things are going badly to not be patient, to wait for God to show up and prove that I will be okay. It is so tempting to lean on something else or someone else or try to intervene in an inappropriate way in order to be okay. But God says you will be okay, and this stand firm doesn't mean just be persistent. It does mean that, but it also means be patient. Your God is faithful, and this promise... Guys, listen, if you're lacking life, okay? I'm not talking about eternal life here. If you're lacking full, abundant joy-filled, peaceful life, if you're lacking that, you at least need to consider that there's some area of your life where you are not standing firm. Not on your own power. Standing firm isn't white-knuckling it and not sinning or not worrying because I try so hard. It's surrendering. It's surrendering to a truth that God has got you, that God is in control, and you will be okay. And your loved ones will too. So I want to ask our elders and our ministers to move just around the room and up in the balcony and their spouses. If you need a witness today, all of us need it. We need a reminder of who Jesus is. If you need a witness from someone today about the goodness or the love of God in light of what you're dealing with, or maybe you need to lay down a worry, some specific worry that is stealing that life from you. And you need a prayer. Maybe you need to confess a place where you are not or have not stood firm and you're haunted by it or it's difficult or it's what's persistent rather than you 
being persistent or if you even if you just need to talk to us about moving into this life with Christ for the very first time we want you to come let's stand and let's praise this awesome God for who he is